Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of AJHP Voices. Investigational drug services play an essential role in the management of medications used in clinical trials, and the complexity of these trials has grown over time, resulting in increased workload for the pharmacy teams that are responsible for managing these investigational medications. Joining me today are Drs. Christina Song, Kim Reddick, and Michelle Yu to discuss their recently published AJHP article that describes development of categories for a complexity tool that can be used in managing the medication components of clinical trials. Christina, Kim, Michelle, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Before we start talking about your paper and the specific work that you did, I think it's interesting. The role of an investigational drug service pharmacist is somewhat unique. And I was wondering if each of you might be willing to talk about the career path that led you into this role. And maybe, Kim, let's start with you. Sure. Thanks, Dan. Well, I've been a pharmacist. I'm in my fourth decade now, so I've been at it a while. And I've been in this role in investigational drugs for the last 17 years. And I think what brought me to this was my interest in sort of a hybrid kind of a practice that had an operational element to it, as well as a patient care element and some administrative aspects. And so when I landed at this spot at the last part of my my last career change, I found that really perfect blend that pulled together sort of critical thinking operations and the clinical pieces that I liked. So leading up to that, I'd been an institutional practitioner for the majority of my career in small community hospital and also large academic medical centers. Got it. Christina, what about you? I found out that I really liked research during my addiction treatment fellowship. And after the fellowship, I transitioned into the role of a research scientist. That's where I implemented an R21 grant involving longitudinal administrative data. During my experiences, like as a fellow and as a research scientist, that's where I built all the baseline skills I need to be an IDS pharmacist. It's a different field but the analytical and information processing skills were highly transferable to my current role. And then in 2019, due to family circumstances, we relocated to Georgia and I was looking for positions that were open and I saw IDS Pharmacy. So there's the research part that I love and then there's pharmacy, which is perfect for me. Those two intersected and then I was like, I'm just going to go and apply for the job. That's what I did. And then my manager did an excellent job of training me introducing me to pharmacists nationally, such as Kim and Michelle, and I've connected through them. And I really enjoy operationalizing clinical trials at the local level. And because no study is the same, it's really fun. The passion is palpable that you have for it. Michelle, how about you? 
I share some of Christina's excitement for the Investigational Drug Service. Pharmacy is actually a second career for me. I started off with studying biomedical engineering and working at a startup biopharmaceutical company. Back then, I was doing a lot of research, development, preclinical studies, which is the step right before clinical trials. And so when I went to pharmacy school, I had always thought that I would go back into pharmaceutical development, back into the pharmaceutical industry. But during pharmacy school, I had the privilege of having a P4 rotation in an investigational drug pharmacy for six weeks. And that really helped kind of open my eyes into the possibilities and connection between investigational drugs and how it kind of overlaps into both the pharmaceutical industry with drug development and with patient care that I've discovered that I like more than I thought. And so investigational drugs was really the perfect in-between place to capture both of those. From pharmacy school, I really had the privilege of completing a PGY-1 and PGY-2 residency in investigational drugs and research, and that really opened my eyes and reaffirmed my passion for investigational services. I share what Christina said. It's a lot of fun to be at the cutting edge of research and seeing all these new medications that are coming through and to be the first ones that see it. You know, when there are new commercials that come on TV, it's really exciting to say, I know that drug. I, I saw it when it was in phase one trials. Well, hopefully one of the outcomes of our conversation today is that maybe the three of you will actually ignite a passion in a listener who wants to seek out a new career path or a student who is thinking about how they will use their pharmacy education. Thanks for sharing those experiences. You know, along those same lines, Kim, the paper has a large group of authors. And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the composition of the author team, all the experiences that were brought together here. And maybe it even relates to some degree to the original work on developing a complexity score. Sure. So as Michelle and Christina said, it, we're kind of a small but mighty specialized practice group. And there are, you know, small listservs across the country. And so then we're all connected to one another through our level of investigational drug services and as a way to benchmark and bounce ideas off of one another about the challenges we're facing. And so in those spaces, we just heard over and over amongst ourselves that complexity was never factored in to how we did our work and that we were using very rudimentary metrics and other things to sort of describe what we did. And so as part of the Vizient Investigational Drug Service group, we conceived this project and we saw it really as such a need in the community of practitioners. Lots of people were excited about it and it seemed to break down into a couple different smaller projects. So one was to use the expertise of that group of practitioners to make a tool sort of off of the wisdom of that group and then figure out how to make that tool operational. And so we had a couple of small projects that lived in the Vizient working group of IDS practitioners. And so the nature of that was it spanned a few years to get all these pieces put together. And there was a lot of enthusiasm for the work. And so we had a lot of people who wanted to be part of the project. So I think it's that combination of a couple small projects and working in a professional organization that moves, you know, a little bit slower than you might do in your own institution because you're collaborating across many sites and just the enthusiasm that made the author list and the, and the participants what you see on the paper. 
One of the things that you talk about, Christina, in the paper early on are really the steps that an investigational drug services pharmacist has to take to set up a study. Can you walk us through those to give us maybe a common understanding before we start to talk specifically about the complexity tool itself? Yeah, of course. Well, after the budget review is done and all the contracts are completed and we finally are ready to start the study at the local site, it can be a dynamic process. The complexity varies by the study. It could range from being a straightforward outpatient oral medication study, or it can be a complicated inpatient slash outpatient chemotherapy infusion study. And there's all these gene therapy studies going on. In the bigger picture, there are several key factors to consider, and these can differ from one site to another because no one site is the same in investigational drug services because it can be all the way from, I don't know, hospital of 100 versus like a hospital with like 700, 800 beds. And you have to determine the study setting, whether it's inpatient, outpatient, clinic, a combination of these. And then you start establishing the local pharmacy protocols, creating study orders, prescriptions. And sometimes you even ask informatics pharmacy for help to build these drugs so that they're orderable. Another aspect is creating local drug accountability logs because a lot of pharmacies may not want to use the sponsor's logs that are provided, and these keep track of shipments received, dispensed, returned. We also set clear instructions for billing-related activities. For example, when we have used drugs, which is also known as subject returns, can we dispose of it locally and bill for it? What do we do with unused drugs? Do we save it for monitor review and is it going to be shipped out? So all these are outlined in our local pharmacy procedures, including how intense is the monitoring plan for our pharmacy. And everything is set up, at least at our site, so that the 200-page protocol, the 20-page pharmacy manual, everything is condensed into one usable page. Kim, Michelle, anything you would add to that in terms of the processes at your sites? I think I would add that most of us, I think, get involved some at the beginning as well with our institutional review board reviews and budget creation that Christina mentioned. So at our site, we have an IRB member and all of our protocols get reviewed by a member of our IDS team for feasibility and safety. So that's an extra step that we do at our site as well, in addition to all of the steps that Christina outlined. I think they both did a really good job kind of outlining all the different tasks to set up a new study. The only thing I would add is that each institution already has their own process and medication use process, how they deliver medications, how they transport, how they administer. And so part of setting up a study that is specific to the site is looking at the requirements that are given to us by the sponsor and figuring out how do we take the set of requirements, look at our own SOPs at the institution and make those two things fit together? And where are there discrepancies that they're asking us to make an exception for? Is that something that we can actually make an exception for? And that is part of what contributes to how unique IDS is at every institution for every single study. Every study has different requirements, has different asks, and every site has varying ability whether or not they can meet those requirements or whether they're not, they're willing to meet those requirements and make exceptions to their SOPs. And so I think that kind of adds to the complexity, to the differences, and to the uniqueness of IDS. 
And along those lines, Michelle, and to some degree, I think that each of you have touched upon this already in your answers. But one of the things that you mention in the paper is that the demands on IDS pharmacists are increasing. So in addition to what's already been said, what are the other reasons that demands on IDS pharmacists are increasing, as you mentioned? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's part of the excitement of IDS is that we are on that cutting edge of research of drug development. And so as there are new technologies and new platforms and new mechanisms of actions that come out, the requirements and the complexity of drug preparation is going to change in accordance with all of that new technology. For example, the way that you prepare a gene therapy or any kind of new drug may require avoid taxing or preparations that are more similar to being in a laboratory versus in a pharmacy. And so those are steps that, you know, if they're early in development, they're going to have a lot more of those more complex preparation instructions. Preparation might take a lot longer in those early phases until they get that process down to a way that is more streamlined in phase three or for commercial use. And so a lot of these new technologies, new drug platforms, even more more stringent storage requirements requiring minus 80. We kind of saw that a little bit with the COVID vaccines that came out requiring minus 80 storage. Some even required liquid nitrogen, which not everybody has. So that adds to complexity. I think in addition, clinical trial design has also changed a lot over the years with adding platform trials, bucket trials. And so essentially one clinical trial could have 10 or 12 different cohorts and each of those cohorts function like a separate clinical trial using different medications, enrolling different patients. And with the dynamics of these changing platform trials, you also have the ability to add arms, remove arms, change doses. And so there's a lot that even though the study has started, there can be a lot of amendments, protocol amendments that was just start brand new arms as if it was a different trial, but technically it's the same clinical trial. And so in the past, you would just have that as one trial. And then when it's done, that's over. But now you have these trials that stay open for years, decades, and it just keeps evolving. And so if you think about over time, you accumulate more and more of those and you're in the position to evaluate, okay, with this amendment, what has changed? Looking at something for the first time is much easier than looking at two different things and trying to compare the difference and really identifying those changes that need to happen. So just with the nature of drug development, with developing new technologies and the evolution of clinical trial design, I think there's a lot more that is required of IDS to be more attentive to details. So Kim, you know, you've talked about the fact that you've been doing this for, I think, close to two decades. And what would you add to what the really comprehensive description that Michelle just gave us? Yes, I think, you know, she spoke earlier about the challenge of getting the protocol and your local SOPs to line up. And I think another thing that's added to our complexity in practice is that part about your local SOPs has gotten more complicated just with 
the changes we've seen in healthcare and pharmacy practice. So when you intersect the protocol demands with now USP 800, uh, USP 797, USP 795 now with compounding and sort of the increase in regulatory compliance as a priority at lots of our institutions, I think that on the institution side, coupled with the things Michelle said about study design and novel therapies, that's sort of the perfect storm that's made the complexity really rise, in my opinion. So this growing complexity of IDSs and lack of tools to measure workload really necessitated the development of an IDS complexity scoring tool. Kim, can you talk a bit about how the tool itself was developed? Sure. So I talked about how we had a passionate group of practitioners in the Vizient IDS subcommittee, and we wanted to tap that expertise to figure out what is it that's really driving complexity. And so the way we developed the scoring tool first was really just by tapping that audience and their boots on the ground wisdom about what was making studies hard. And so we, we really opened it up to our membership to just brainstorm ideas around what was making their work more complex, more difficult at their local sites. And we used that and then an iterative approach, a consensus building approach amongst a group of senior members of that committee to bucket and and arrive at sort of the basic complexity tool that we went out of the gate with for the next part of our project. So we really, we wanted to ask the people, you know, what is making it hard? And we got a big list of things and then we bucketed and voted in a kind of a consensus uh, approach to get that down to the tool that we took forward in the sort of the next part of our project. Christina, Michelle, is there anything that you would add to that based on your experiences or your observations of the process that contributed to the need for the, the complexity scoring tool itself? I think Kim really described it very well in terms of why we needed something to describe that for the investigational drug services. One thing that I think I can add is also that it is such a unique process for every institution that the complexity tool may change. Like there's some parts of it that allow for adding certain criteria that are directly from your institution that may make it more difficult as well. So that also can factor into it that not every single category that's on there may be applicable to an investigational drug service. Now, if I understand the process correctly, first the complexity scoring tool was developed, but then there was a, a need identified to develop cutoff points for the tool. Kim, what drove the need for this current work, the establishment of the cutoff points? What drove that? And so I think what drove that in my mind is the fact that what were we going to do with this tool? And I think most of us saw utility at our local sites for things like workload metrics and also for fees that we charge for our services. And so we felt like to make it practical and useful locally, we needed to not just come up with a single score, but have uh, buckets 
of high, medium, and low. That aligned really well with how most of us set up our fees that we charge studies. We have tiered approaches and menu approaches. And so it made sense to try to make the tool meet the needs of practice, right? And so the bucketing or the categorization, we agreed when we were conceiving the tool that that would be important to make it useful. So Michelle, what was the the process that was used to establish the cutoff points? The tool has two different sections to it. One section for study initiation, how difficult is it to initiate a study? And then another section for how difficult is it to maintain that study after it has been initiated? And so we reached out to the Vizient group and opened it up for users to complete the tool for studies that they had. And we collected all of those responses in terms of what score was given using the tool, but then also also collective, what did you perceive that complexity to be just based on your own experience in IDS? When we collected those scores, we used the statistics to figure out kind of how many buckets make sense to separate them into. And as Kim mentioned, we ended up with low, medium, high that aligned very nicely with different complexity categories that people were already using for, you know, budgeting and workload processes. And when we came out, you know, the the statistics gave us really nice cutoff numbers in terms of, you know, where the low starts and ends and medium start and end and then high categories for those scores. And I think that allows us to interpret those scores a little bit better, you know, low, medium, high, or a little bit more intuitive than, let's say, five out of 10. Christina, then there was a process for looking at agreement between those established cutoffs and IDS pharmacists' perceptions of complexity. Can you talk a bit about that process? Yeah, of course. So we found a strong agreement between the established cutoffs in the complexity scoring tool and the perceptions of the pharmacist. So the low, medium, and high categories closely match the pharmacist's perceptions on how they perceive the complexity of the clinical trials. And this finding is significant because it actually validates the tool's ability to provide an objective measure of the trial complexity, which is where we're going for. We want multiple sites to use this study and get similar complexity scoring. And it really underscores the tool's credibility and practicality, offering a standardized approach for evaluating and managing workload in investigational drug services. So with that in mind, the desire to have multiple sites use it, to be able to use it for workload purposes, as one example, how do you see it being used then in practice, Christina, now that you have a tool that's been established with validated cutoff points? What do you see as the potential for this tool in practice? Yeah, so... It's always used whenever I do a budget review for feasibility reasons, and it gives us a heads up on what to expect from each trial. That way we can plan ahead and make sure we have all the staff and resources ready to go. It's also powerful for financial planning. When we categorize a trial as high complexity, we can justify the fee for our services because we're all about creating fair and accurate budgets. But it's not all about the numbers. It's also about deciding whether is a trial actually feasible at our site. Sometimes 
it might not be a good fit and this tool can help with that as well. Or we can compromise and make the study fit for our site by utilizing this complexity scoring tool. It can also be used for benchmarking and research. We can compare what our outputs are compared to other institutions and we can create insightful research papers. It's all about optimizing our pharmacy practices. So the tool allows us to tailor our procedures and workflows to match the complexity of each trial. So the top of the tool has standardized questions and answers that we can complete and the bottom we can tailor specifically to our site. Kim, what about you? What would you add in terms of the way you see the tool being used at your site or more broadly in practice? Yeah, at our site, some ways that we are using it or, or intend to use it, a billing, I think we mentioned, and setting up your fee sheet can be then stratified or tiered by complexity. Um, and as Michelle said, we have an initiation and a maintenance complexity score, and most of us have separate fee structures for each of those activities. So for sure, for billing, as a the manager of my service, it helps me with workload balancing. And so instead of just saying every pharmacy has the same number of studies on my team, I can say every pharmacist has the same number of complexity points. And so you can get credit, so to speak, or you can weight the way you assign your work. I think we've been able to watch individual elements come and go. Um, and as we said, this is a dynamic space. And so some of the things that we see coming, we didn't see as much in the past. And so we can watch trends over time. I've used some of this really powerfully to talk to senior leaders in C-suite when I'm looking to talk about where we're headed, what we see in our often broken crystal balls, right, about what's happening. I can look at complexity trends over time and I can, in an objective way, I can communicate to my senior leaders what we talked about at the top of this conversation where we talked about all the things that are changing, the impulses we all feel as practitioners. That doesn't really work with a C-suite. You need to have a story to tell. And so this allows you to watch some trends in complexity over time. I think it also has given us the ability to objectively say to anyone, study team or PI, hey, your study's hard. You know, we're not just making it up. When we score it out, it has a higher complexity score than others. And so I think the transparency and the trending are some of the external things that I've found really powerful about something like this, besides the sort of internal workload leveling and those things I mentioned. So Kim, what have the reactions been from the PIs when you've had to have that conversation with them <laughs> to say to them, you know, your study's hard? Well, I think, you know, sometimes they're asking why the fees, you know, why are you charging more? Why can't you get this up and running overnight? And I think, you know, the more that we can signal that early and give them something objective to help them understand why it's going to take us some time, some collaboration, some planning when there's one of these high complexity studies, you know, I think it's eye-opening to them, I think, to understand how difficult it can be to do one of the trials like Michelle described, you know, with a gene therapy or an umbrella or a basket design. So I think you get less pushback when you come with the data. We know that from clinical practice, actually. So it's just an extension of that sort of relationship we were able to have with the PIs in this case. So Kim, 
where do we go next? What are the next steps with this work, with the complexities tools application and practice? You and Christina have talked a lot about how it's being used today. Christina made some references to, you know, even the research that could evolve from the study of the tool itself. What does come next? I think we're happy to get it out there beyond just the visit group and have it get a wider audience. So we're excited that we'll be able to get it out to some other practitioners. And so I think we'd like to get it road tested some more. In the time that we've been working on this project, because of the dynamic nature, we probably might have to go back to the bench and just see if our criteria are still correct, right? Because we'd have new things that we didn't think about a few years ago when we were conceiving it. So I think future to me looks like get some more traction in the front lines and then bring that wisdom back and get a version two going that might be more germane to what we see in practice now. I also think we tried to do iterator reliability on this project and see if we could score the same study the same way across different sites. And we didn't have enough numbers to substantiate that. And I think a tool like this, you know, version one was our best offering out of the gate, but I think we can be more robust in the next iteration, doing some, hope to do some iterator reliability refinement based again on current state and see if those cut points and things still stand true. So I think in the dynamic field and version one of a, a complexity tool, there's lots of open road ahead of us, right, to refine and validate. And then I also think let's get some things out in the literature about these great ways we're using it to show trends over time, because that becomes even more powerful. I think when you're talking to a sponsor or your senior leaders or folks about look at this complexity over time, it's not just the service at University of Michigan, it's nationally we can start to share and have these things out there that help substantiate the discussions that we have locally in, in this complicated work we're trying to do. So those would be my ideas about where we could go. Michelle, what would you add? I think Kim has really said everything that I wanted to say. I think the main things that come to my mind was to go back and create something that is more robust, add more to it with more data from the real world use behind it. And then certain applications of how we are using this tool to communicate with others, mainly leadership groups. Christina? I'm in complete agreement with what Kim and Michelle have already said. I am excited to have this paper available as a reference that we can use and show sponsors when they're asking, because some do ask, like, where did this complexity tool for come from? And I can't back it up yet, but now I can. And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. Christina Song. Kim Reddick and Michelle Yu for joining us today to discuss their article, Development of Complexity Categories for an Investigational Drug Services Complexity Scoring Tool to Assess Pharmacy Effort and Clinical Trial Initiation and Maintenance, which was recently published on HHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary pharmacy practice issues and interviews with HHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes. 
please visit AJHP.org.